Well, I think I would pick uh, Eeyore as a friend. I uh, also saw a little Curious George icon there up in the room with Debbie. Uh, And I'm glad to be with you. You are my friends. Thank you for tuning in and worshiping Jesus with us today. My name is George Hinman. And uh, as Grant and Christy said, we were supposed to be doing, beginning the uh, Life After College's Weird series. Looking forward to that. But in light of the events uh, in our national news, I wanted to disrupt that plan and speak to our current moment uh, today. So you'll f- forgive me for doing so. But Anne and I have just been glued to the news. We've not been able to stop live streaming uh, these protests. We've been staying up late at night, unable to even uh, go to bed some nights. And I wanted to speak to that. You know, when we gather here at church every Sunday, what we oftentimes say to one another is, Jesus is with you. And that's one of the great promises of the gospel. He is with you. It's so true. But today, I want to raise a different question. And that's the question, are we with Jesus? Are we with him? It's an important question for us because our mission at University Presbyterian Church is to join Jesus to transform our lives and the lives of our neighbors. If we're going to do that, if we're going to join Jesus, we need to know, well, where is he? And how do we join him? So I want to reflect on that a little bit with you today. And I've been helped this week by the Gospel of John. I'm grateful for the influence of, of, of Reverend Herman Hamilton for his perspective uh, and for this text in particular, his insights. Herman Hamilton is a dear friend of mine, and he's my pastor, so I'm, I'm grateful. I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John. If you've got a Bible, you might turn to John chapter 11, verse 32, or navigate, if you like, on another screen, and you might choose to read the text aloud together. That's what we'd be doing if we were all able to be here present. I would invite you to stand to your feet, uh, if you're able, and um, we would read John 11, 32 through 38 aloud together. And at the end, I would say, uh, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen closely. We're reading God's holy word. John 11, verse 32. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eye of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then again, Jesus greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. So where is Jesus? Where is he? Well, St. John tells us. He's near a grave raging. Raging. Yeah, did you notice that? Jesus is angry. The text, verse 33, says Jesus was greatly disturbed. Now, the apostle couldn't have used a stronger language to articulate the anger in the heart of Jesus at that moment. When that word is translated 
uh, about a, a horse, it means snort. He's snorting. When it's used of a human being, it's, it's oftentimes it means suppressed rage. Supp- rage. The great Princeton divine B.B. Warfield long ago wrote that as Jesus approaches the grave of Lazarus, he feels welling up within his breast irrepressible anger. And as he, as he approaches, what grows in him is just rage. This is what John is telling us. Jesus, Jesus is greatly disturbed. And now I think I understand that just a little bit better. Uh, this week, I, I have been so disturbed and angered by the news, I, I can't stop watching. It's hurtful to watch. I, I find I wake up at night, I can't sleep. But I don't want to not sleep. I don't want to be awake. I, I, I can't even find the words to describe how angry recent news makes me feel. I, I mean, we watched a man die eight minutes and 46 seconds with someone, one of us, on his neck with a knee, choking him out. Someone who was sworn to defend and to protect him. And he calls for his mother. He's been dead for two years. Someone who's handcuffed, helpless, lying face down on the ground. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. I can't breathe. George Floyd. I understand this kind of anger. That's what Jesus is feeling right now. By the way, this anger is not just the anger over one person, Mr. George Floyd. I feel angry because I'm realizing that it is not safe to have brown skin in America. I feel angry that a mother should have to look her child in the eyes and explain to him how not to get killed that day. And that when she sends him out the door to go to school, she has to wonder if he'll be okay when he comes back or if he'll come back at all. Angry over racial injustice in America. And Jesus feeling an irrepressible rage welling up inside of him, approaches the tomb of Lazarus. He goes to the grave, I believe, of Mr. George Floyd, the same way that he goes to the grave of Lazarus, raging. And and why, Jesus, we would ask him, why, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, do you go to the grave with a red face and clenched fist, puffing out anger? Why? Because Jesus tells us this is not the way life is supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to go. That man should be alive. He's angry. Our Savior is angry. It's important that we remember just exactly who it is Jesus is. Remember in the Gospel of John, John has already told us he is the Word made flesh. He is the creator of time and space, stepped into human history. 
This is the one through whom all things were made and for whom. This is the one who made George Floyd, who gave George his life, who puts his breath in him that he might flourish and be a man full of freedom. And now as Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, he sees the negation of life. He has to see it with his own eyes now up close what death looks like. He sees death seizing life and crushing it and choking it right in front of him. Jesus comes to the grave like a warrior, comes to the front lines, and now he sees it face to face. So this is finally death. This is it. This is the reason for which he came. This is, as the Apostle Paul would later write, the last enemy. Now Jesus sees it and he's furious. This is what the Bible calls the wrath of God. God gets angry. This is what happens when God's love meets resistance. When God's life encounters resistance, fury, rage. Maybe you're feeling angry. Are you? Are you feeling angry this week? Because if you're not feeling some kind of anger, I would worry that you're not with Jesus. But I know that you are. I know that you are because I know you've had to watch a man die as though he weren't a human being, as though he weren't made in the image and likeness of the one we worship. We had to watch a lynching. We've had to see another illustration of racial injustice in the land of democracy. And if your heart isn't throbbing and beating about to burst, if you don't want to punch your hand through a wall, then I don't know if you're with Jesus. Because Jesus is raging. Jesus is greatly disturbed, John tells us. That's where he is. Jesus is near a grave, raging. And then he moves. Jesus moves. So we ask, where is he now? Where is Jesus? He's with his friends weeping. Where have you laid him, our Lord asks. Lord, come and see. And then the two shortest verses the shortest verse in the Bible, translated into two words oftentimes, Jesus wept. There he is with his friends, weeping, weeping. And I can't tell you how much that means to me this week because I have been weeping. I have not been able to write this message without uncontrollably weeping. It means so much to me to meet our Savior in, in consolation, weeping for the family of George Floyd, weeping for African Americans in America, weeping for the world, weeping over the inhumanity, the incivility, the injustice, and the despair. And you know what grieves me the most 
Yes, there's seeing the death of Mr. Floyd. Yes, there's having to watch a monster murder him. But I think what troubles me the most, it's those three police officers who stood by. There's something about those three men and the space in between them. They do nothing. They just stand there and watch. They say nothing. They're silent. As I watch that image over and over and over again, I begin to realize that I'm standing in that same space with them. That all too often I have been standing there doing nothing, standing there silent. It's that space between them that implicates me. I live in that space of silence. I live in that space of inaction. I live in that space of complicity. And I don't know what to do about it. I find myself just crying. Crying. And it means so much to me that Jesus is crying with me and with you. But it does get uncomfortable to see the strongest who ever lived dissolve into tears, doesn't it? It gets uncomfortable. And the people around him, his friends, they see this, and they say, well, well, if you're so upset about this, why don't you do something? Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you get here earlier? If you love him so much, why didn't you prevent this thing from happening? Why didn't you intervene? Could not he who opens the eyes of the blind have done something? Why do you cry? But Jesus weeps. He sits with his friends and he weeps. Now this is what the Bible calls lament. It's really important for us. Lament grows out of the Israelite experience of exile. And we've been working with exile. It's very important for us. Remember Jeremiah and Daniel. And now Jesus Jesus in exile laments. To, to lament, it means to, to cry out in pain. It means to cry out with a confession of sin. Oh, Lord, why, we say. How long, we say. Have mercy, we say. This is, this is the lament. It's very important for us. So often we want to move ahead with solutions. We want to point fingers at people. And there's space for that. But Jesus isn't doing that right now. Oftentimes those things can be defense mechanisms, forms of denial. And i got to say, we are seeing how deadly denial is proving in our streets right now. We can't afford it. And the antidote is lamentation. It's to sit in the pain and the brokenness and weep. It's to open our hearts up to more of the hurt. See Jesus doing this? He says, oh, weep with me, friends. Weep with me, friends. Would you open your heart and take in all of this pain? As you do that, my Father will enlarge your heart. My Father will put His heart in you, give you a heart of flesh. Does your heart break for the things that break the heart of God? 
Are you weeping? If you're weeping, you're with Jesus today. You're finding Jesus in your tears. And I know that you are. I know that you are. Jesus is near a grave raging. Jesus is with his friends weeping. And then he moves. Jesus moves. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in the streets marching. Watch this now. Jesus leaves the place where he had met Mary and Martha. And he marches together with a growing crowd of people from Bethany. They march in the streets towards the tomb of Lazarus. Now, if to you it seems like a little bit of a stretch to call this a march or a protest, I just want to encourage you to keep reading the story. See what happens in John 11, because as you do, you'll see that the governing authorities of the day very clearly perceive the meaning of this procession. They say to themselves, if this keeps up, he will destroy our whole nation. You see, they understand that their nation and their power is built on these fragile pillars that Jesus now threatens in his very being and with his teaching and in this march. They're going to use all the power that they possess to come against him. And this march is the provocation. This is the moment when they decide to murder Jesus. You see, if you're Jesus is just a Jesus who gives you a little bit of personal piety or spiritual religious comfort whenever you need, kind of like a talisman to help you get through the day, feel better about yourself. I want to tell you, no harm, no foul. Nobody cares about that Jesus, but that's not the real Jesus. That's not the Jesus here. This is a Jesus who has come to change the power structures of the universe. Jesus speaks of a new world order. He speaks of a world that's passing away and a new world that's coming. He speaks of a new kingdom. And he has since the very beginning of his ministry. Remember in Luke 4 when he, he begins his ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to let the oppressed go free. That's how he began his ministry. And from that moment forward, that's when they started to come for him. They wanted to kill him then. The crowds did. I told you earlier that Ann and I have been watching these protests in the news. It wasn't enough for me to watch. I've joined them. <laughs> I put on my Kindred t-shirt over my work shirt and I get on my bike and I, I go over to the protests and I, and, I, and I join them. It's been so important to me to listen. I, I'm not endorsing the violence, of course not, or the looting, no. But I want to be with the people who are saying, this will not stand. And, and, it, and I worry that it's so easy to get distracted by the sideshow and not listen. I urge you to hear, 
to hear from people who speak of 400 years of racial injustice, who speak of it as though it weren't just history, but, but something that they actually experience every single day today in Seattle. Jesus is with a crowd marching. And I'm here to say it's time for change. It's time for change in America. It's time for change in Seattle. It's time for change in me. In me. In me. Are you marching? I know you are. Many of you literally in the streets. Thank you. All of you, figuratively, in the way that's most appropriate for you. You're marching in the way that you post on social media, the things that you say, the ways that you parent, the ways that you hire and work with your colleagues, the ways that you vote. You're marching. Thank you. Keep marching. Because that's what Jesus is doing. That's where he is. He's in the streets marching. And I want to be with him. And as your pastor, I want you to be with him as well. Jesus is near a grave raging. Jesus is with his friends weeping. Jesus is in the streets marching. And then one last time he moves. Jesus has one final move. Where is Jesus? Jesus is beyond the grave, rising. He's rising. And you know what? I have hope for our situation. I want you to know that. I have hope for racial justice and equity. I really do. I know that a lot of people don't, and I know how hard it is. But I have hope, and i got to tell you, this Sunday morning, this Resurrection Sunday, the reason I do is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gives us hope. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about two kinds of grief. He calls one worldly grief, or worldly sorrow, and he calls the other godly grief or godly sorrow. Two kinds of sorrow. He says that worldly sorrow leads to death. But he says that godly sorrow produces repentance. Repentance is a fancy word for turning around, change of direction. Godly sorrow produces repentance, a turn. And repentance leads to salvation. See, it's important to understand the, the distinction. Not all sorrow is the same. And we've seen lots of worldly sorrow, right? Sorrow, death. Sorrow, death. Sorrow, death. The pattern is very familiar to us in America. And I have to say, it's exhausting. And there's absolutely no hope there. But worldly sorrow is sorrow that produces a turn in our lives. 
It's a sorrow that produces repentance that leads to salvation because of Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection and the risen one. Salvation. This is what gives us hope. You and I will never change the world if we cannot change ourselves. And here's the problem, I think. The problem is that you and I are children of the Enlightenment, which means we've been implicitly taught that when there's a problem, we can fix it ourselves. And, and, and so we, we think about racism as just another form of stupidity, don't we? And we think that we can just kind of educate ourselves and others and we won't be racist anymore. That if you could kind of get it, Oh yeah, I get it, now I won't do it anymore. That's an enlightenment mindset, but I want to tell you, that is not the perspective of the Bible. No. In the Bible, racism is sin. Racism is sin, which is to say it's evil that has found an anchor in our souls. Everyone has sin in our, in our souls, in their souls. The problem we're up against is, is not ignorance. No matter how educated you are, you have a problem of sin in your soul, as do I. And we can't fix that problem ourselves. The Bible tells us we are up against principalities and powers. The Bible tells us, I'll tell you where sin comes from. It comes from the depths of hell. And there's nothing you and I can particularly do about the depths of hell, but there's something that Jesus can, and that's what's called salvation. You see, Jesus keeps marching past the tomb of Lazarus. He marches to the cross. It's on the cross that God's irrepressible rage is poured out on humanity in Jesus. Poured out on sin, poured out on evil, poured out on death. It's on the cross that God says, no more. And the venom of hell is removed. And the sting of death is gone. And salvation in Jesus Christ is now available for all humanity. See, that's what gives us hope. That's what brings change. See, Christ has passed through his tomb. He's passed through the tomb of Mr. Floyd. He's passed through the tomb of his murderer. He's passed through my tomb and your tomb, and now he is risen. And here's the invitation he offers each and every one of us today. Give me your life. Give me your trust. Give me your faith, and you will rise with me. That's the promise of salvation. Listen, don't miss this today. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. And if you live and believe in me, you will never die. Now, he's not just talking about eternal life. He's talking about life here and now for all of eternity. We don't want to make the mistake that Mary makes here, thinking that salvation Jesus offers us is, is uh, something that we get at some future time in some future other place. No, what Jesus is saying is, I am the resurrection and the life. That future time, that other place, it's a person. It's me. And this person is standing in front of you, each of us, right now, saying, do you 
believe? Will you receive my salvation? Jesus is beyond the grave rising. And we don't want to make the mistake that Martha makes. Apparently Martha believes in salvation, but believes it's for some future time and place. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Salvation is a person. I am the resurrection and the life. A person standing right in front of you, right here, right now. And I believe he's standing in front of each and every one of us as well. Jesus says, rise with me. So now you know where he is. If this week you should wonder, where has Jesus gone? St. John has told us. Jesus is near a grave, raging, with his friends, weeping, in the streets, marching, and beyond the grave, rising. That's where he is. That's where he is right now. And that's where we need to go to join him. Friend, where are you today? Where are you? We say it every week. Jesus is with you. Wherever you are, he's with you right now. It's true. But it is also true that if we want to be with him, we've got to move. And this is my prayer for us. I pray that we will move with Jesus. I pray for sorrow that produces repentance that leads to salvation in our nation, in our city, and in ourselves. And I want to tell you, I am tremendously encouraged right now because I have seen too many evidences that Jesus Christ is leading this church. I believe God is doing a fresh work at UPC, and it's so exciting. Let me just give you two quick illustrations of that, two dates. Number one, March 10th. A year ago, March 10th, I stood here at the beginning of the Next Door initiative and said to you, the center of gravity, our elders have discerned that the center of gravity is moving from our church campus into the neighborhoods of Seattle. And now, here we are. It was one year later that we had to close the doors. And now we're next door. Second date, March 24th, it's a few weeks ago, The subject that day was acting for justice. It was the culmination of six weeks with our kindred partners. Six weeks reading Beyond Colorblind. Six weeks building relationships across lines of ethnicity. Six weeks of learning about and engaging in racial reconciliation in our city. And you know what happened the next day? Mr. George Floyd was murdered. Let me tell you where both of these things take me. They make it really clear to me that Jesus is leading this church, that Jesus has gone before us, that he's caring for us, and that he's carrying us along, and we're following him. I mean, we now see how important kindred is. We see what happens if we don't succeed. We see what happens if we don't love our neighbors. So if you're new to UPC, Welcome. What a great time to to join. Let's join together as we join Jesus in our world. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your heart. Thank you for the way that Jesus singularly reveals your heart. Thank you what you're doing in our lives as you give us the gift of salvation. Thank you for what you're doing in the whole world as you call us out as your agents of peace and reconciliation.
and salvation to bring healing to this beloved creation. And it is still beloved, and you will not be satisfied until the world goes the way it's supposed to be. We ask your blessing on us in Christ's name. Amen.